Welcome to the Documenting Climate Change podcast. My name is Chris King. I'm a documentary storyteller. And in this series of podcasts, I'm speaking to people who are actively documenting the issue of climate change in any format and on any level, be it the causes, the impacts, or the mitigation or adaption efforts. Hi, everyone. I hope you're all managing to stay healthy and sane. It's an incredibly dynamic period in human history, I'm sure you'll agree. It was before COVID-19 popped onto the radar, and now it's hit a whole new level. The lens through which we're now viewing our societies and seeing our place in the world and within nature, both individually and collectively, has fundamentally changed. And we must ensure that it's for the better. We reached a cliff edge that most of us never even knew we were hurtling towards, and as a consequence, there has been and will continue to be a significant amount of suffering. It's exposed a lack of resilience in our systems and highlighted with extraordinary efficiency the many inequalities that have been created and maintained within the prevailing capitalistic system. The reason I'm saying all this is because, as this week's guest will point out, we've been guilty of ambivalence for decades on the issue of climate change, and many people have suffered as a consequence. But instead of hurtling off another cliff edge, we can use this opportunity, where the unthinkable has now become conceivable and palatable, to make a transition, albeit an accelerated one, to creating a more resilient, more egalitarian society and strive to keep the suffering to a minimum. This shared experience we're currently living through is revealing what lies ahead if we don't. For this to happen, we must start embracing the alternatives that have already been seen to be viable and scalable, particularly economic systems that allow prosperity while functioning within planetary boundaries and nurturing greater dialogue and engagement on the issue of climate change. This week's guest hasn't been exploring alternative economic systems, but he has spent the last 16 years traveling to every continent on the planet to document the impacts of climate change and the rise of renewable energy. He's Ashley Cooper, an environmental photographer who has witnessed an incredible amount in terms of the impacts of climate change to communities across the globe, as well as the mitigation and adaption efforts. As you can imagine, Ashley has amassed a vast collection of images, which he licenses through his own photo agency dedicated purely to climate change and renewable energy at globalwarmingimages.net. Ashley has also published a book with 500 of the best images from his epic journey around the planet, which he sent to people like Al Gore and the Pope as a way of raising awareness about the impacts of climate change that are currently being felt by communities around the globe and is available to buy at images from a warming planet.net. You can find these links and links to a crowdfunding campaign Ashley's running to get more books sent to key policymakers in the show notes at documentingclimatechange.org forward slash podcasts. And if you enjoy this and the other podcasts in the series, please be sure to leave a rating and review and sign up to the weekly newsletter to be kept informed of the latest releases, articles, advice on how better to communicate on the issue of climate change as well as featured work. You can do this by visiting documentingclimatechange.org forward slash newsletter. Okay, so here finally is my interview with Ashley Cooper. Enjoy. My name is Ashley Cooper. I'm an environmental photographer and I've spent the last 16 years traveling to every continent on the planet to document uh, the causes of climate change, uh, the many impacts 
that climate change is having right around the planet and also uh, some of the solutions like the rise of renewable energy. And what inspired you to start exploring the issue of climate change and, and what motivated you to keep going? I've always been interested in the outdoors and environmental issues and around about the turn of the century I was looking for maybe a little bit more focus in terms of the work I was doing as a photographer and I was also then reading um, a little bit more about climate change and I just thought to myself hmm this sounds very interesting this so maybe I should put together a photo shoot specifically to, to look at some of the issues mm-hmm. and I spent probably three or four months organizing a month-long photo shoot to Alaska to look at things like permafrost melt, glacial retreat, uh, the spread of forest fires, the spread northwards of spruce bark beetles that never used to be able to survive in Alaskan winter, but as the winters got warmer, they could, and they were killing off millions of acres of forest. And I had a week on a tiny little island called Shishmaref, which is very remote. It's between Alaska and Siberia. It's home to about 600 Inuits. And their houses were just getting washed into the sea because the sea ice that used to form around their island, maybe late September time, wasn't forming until, say, Christmas time. So if they had a bad storm came through before the sea ice had locked the island up, it was just knocking great chunks out of their island and and was washing their houses into the sea. And I was just blown away by how in your face the impacts of climate change were in the Arctic at a time when I would say about 50% of the people that I talked to before I went to Alaska and about my plans and, and after I got back to say what I've been doing, I would say at that point in time, that was 2004, about 50% of the people's response was climate change, what, what's that? I've never heard of that. And, you know, it would be inconceivable you could get that response from somebody today, but that was the reality back in 2004. So I, um, having spent a month doing that, got some of the uh, images and a story published, I think it was in the Times newspaper uh, and one or two other places, and I kind of thought maybe I should look into this a little bit more. So I then organised a photo shoot uh, down to Tuvalu, uh, which is in the Pacific Ocean, the smallest country in the world, uh, low-lying coral atoll uh, islands, And I coincided my uh, photo shoot with the the highest tides of the year, the king tides, when the sun and the moon align and you get the greatest gravitational pull. And that was equally kind of dramatic and shocking. You know, the middle of the main island, Funafuti, where most people live, was was four feet underwater at the, the highest point of the tide. And that was a flat, calm sea. It wasn't a storm. It was just literally the height that highest tides had got to. Um... And I returned from from that and put all my images out there into the media and what have you. And and from then, I just kind of thought, you know what, I think this is um, really what I should be concentrating on. So organized another couple more photo shoots. And then not long after that, I kind of formulated this idea of trying to document the impacts of climate change on every continent. And it took me about 14 years to do that. Yeah, it's quite a commitment. 
And yes. <laughs> so what what drove you forward? Because obviously witnessing these uh, these communities and all that they were experiencing and suffering, how how did you feel when you witnessed these events? It, uh, I mean, I've probably seen more impacts of climate change than kind of any other living person, really. And you just time and time and time again, you see communities that are just being ripped apart. Um, whether that's by extreme weather events or you know, in the case of Shishmaref, their houses being knocked into the sea. Um, and, you know, it just kind of leaves you numb that there are so many people around the world struggling um, with the impacts of climate change, you know, and, and we're struggling 15, 20 years ago. And yet even today, people still talk about climate change as this thing that's going to maybe a problem for humanity at some point going forward. Well, you know, kind of wake up, hello, it's already here, it's already impacting the lives of millions of people and has been doing for for over 20 years now. Um, So, uh, you know, seeing all the things that I've seen, you know, it's it's kind of depressing. Um, But I also get frustrated as well um, about really the lack of action on the part of, of all world governments, really. Uh, nobody is doing enough um, to tackle the climate emergency that we are facing very, very rapidly. So you say that it made you feel numb and, and obviously depressing to witness these things and especially the, the inertia at a uh, policy level. So what kept you going and, and how did you deal with those emotions and, and the stresses that you were putting yourself under? In terms of what kept me going, it was just really a subject area that really barely anybody else at the time was concentrating on. And I just thought from a very early stage, I just thought this is the one defining issue for humanity going forward. This is the greatest threat um, that humanity has ever faced. You know, it is going to kill more people in already is than every world war put together or every pandemic you can uh, imagine and that's what kind of motivated me to to keep me going really the fact that there were very few people out there documenting it as an issue at the time and yet it just seemed to me to be the defining issue facing humanity in the 21st century so i just felt it was it was critical that somebody was out there kind of on the front line documenting what what climate change was you know the impacts that climate change was was having and why do you think people were so blind to it and have been so blind to it uh, for so long i think early on um it was maybe impacting communities uh that were a little bit out of the way so there's an element of kind of out of sight out of mind um People weren't really aware of the issues, maybe you know, what impacts it was already having. Um, certainly a lot of the communities that were impacted were maybe quite poor communities. I mean, something I saw time and time and time again traveling around the planet was that you know, those communities and those people that were least responsible for climate change, as in they had the smallest carbon footprints, you know, were most impacted by climate change. Um, you know, the, the wealthy individuals in the West who are mainly to blame 
um, for for the rising emissions since the start of the the dawn of the industrial revolution. Um, at that point in time, you know, at the turn of the century, really weren't being impacted too much by climate change. But poor people in other parts of the world, and certainly in the Arctic, were being impacted. It, it just for me, it was just something I really had to concentrate on, really had to keep going, and really had to kind of focus to to, to try and document as much as I could. And what were the communities, what were they sharing with you in terms of their, their stories and their experiences beyond what you captured visually? What I found was that there was hugely different experiences depending on whether I was documenting what was causing climate change or its impacts. And certainly uh, when I was visiting communities that were impacted by climate change, overwhelmingly I got a very positive response uh, to what I was doing. People were very keen to work with me. People were very keen to share their stories with me because, you know, they got it. They knew it was real. They knew it was happening and it was impacting their lives. And they were keen for the wider world um, to know what was happening. So in terms of going into communities, um, whether they'd just been, you know, annihilated by desperate bushfires or whether their houses had been washed away in some monumental flood, people were wanting to share those stories and get those stories out there. So I was very well received everywhere uh, that I went um, to document certainly certainly the impacts. Um, that wasn't quite the same when I was documenting um, the corporations um that were causing climate change and there I was just kind of hustled and threatened by police security guards kind of every step of the way really. Right and how how was your work received by editors um, of publications when you were pitching it to them or trying to get it published? The Guardian in particular has always been very very strong on um, really trying to publicise what's happening with climate change and their, you know, their stance has just got stronger and stronger over the years. So I, I work pretty closely with them. Um, other, you know, other newspapers would would publish articles about climate change um, when they thought it was something maybe spectacular and when it was maybe impacting, you know, their readership. Um, but certainly in the early days, there was a pretty slow... Um, response by a lot of the media to 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 give much coverage um, to climate change at all, to be honest. And you just got the usual split in the media. You know those um, those right wing newspapers um, that have kind of maybe are the natural home or supporters of the, of the Conservative Party. Then you know what you used to see a lot in those papers was a lot of very anti uh, kind of press around climate change. Certainly in the early days, they were trying to uh, kid their readership that it, you know it wasn't happening, or if it was happening, it, humanity wasn't responsible. Um, so there's a real difference in responses of media outlets. Um, the BBC, in particular, um, I think has been a disaster um, covering climate change. They are better now, uh, but it's literally only in the last two years that they've upped their game. And certainly 
probably for about the first 16 years of me documenting what I was documenting, the policy that the BBC had was that they covered climate change as a political issue. So if they are um, asking uh, a question of something they deem to be political, then they have their balance. So they interview a, a, a Tory MP, they've got to interview a Labour MP. They used the same thinking around climate change. So you would get interviews where they would interview a climate scientist who might have spent their life working on this thing, but might not necessarily be the world's best communicator. Then the BBC felt they should, for balance, give the same amount of time to um, somebody put up by the fossil fuel industry uh, to put a sceptical position forward. And that person was obviously often uh, would run rings around the climate scientists in terms of being an effective communicator. And so I think that's why, um, certainly in the UK, there was so much inaction for so long, because the public were utterly confused about the issue. Because on the one hand, if you don't do your own research into climate change, which the vast majority of people don't, if you've got five minutes of one person telling you one thing and five minutes of another person telling you something else, who do you believe? And so I think the BBC um, did a huge disservice to humanity in the way that they chose to cover the story in the climate emergency. And as I say, it's really only in the last two years uh, where they've changed their tack. And, and thankfully now, uh, very rarely are, are they giving uh, a voice um, to the, the climate sceptics funded by, by the fossil fuel lobby. And how do you feel then about the, the actual representation beyond what the BBC was doing and, and this kind of uh, false perception of balance? You were saying that a lot of the media outlets would just engage with the subject when it was more sensationalist, extreme weather events, Much and it seems like that's pretty much the same now. Were you, were you influenced that, by that in any way? Because obviously you had to sustain yourself. You had to get the funds to be able to continue with your work. Did you ever start producing work just purely or, or exploring stories just purely based on what would sell? Or did you just follow your own instinct and, and follow a different path? Yeah, I mean, I could never really tell what, in terms of a story, what might or might not have sold. So I just, from a very early stage, decided these are the subjects that need to be covered. These are the, the major issues around climate change. So that's what I'm going to cover. And then the images that I took, I put into my own sort of photo agency site, Global Warming Images, but I also put them into a, a lot of other photo agencies as well. And it was the sale of those images, you know, into books, into newspapers, into magazines that that enabled me to to continue to fund what was a pretty expensive um, project, really, because I reckon I probably spent about three hundred thousand uh, pounds to put the image collection together, um, all of which was self-funded. That didn't include any cost for my time that was just all the cost of the folk putting the photo shoots together you know the travel the subsistence all that kind of stuff the gear um and all of that was funded through sales of the images mainly through photo agencies um so i wasn't all the time dealing directly with newspapers myself sometimes i did sometimes i didn't um and so i just decided re really early on i need to cover what the important issues are 
and not really try to be led by well i'm going to go i'm going to cover that because i know that will sell well um and yeah probably financially that might have been a better model to take uh, but i think it what it would have done is left out some really important stories that needed to be told um, but just wouldn't be told because they weren't commercially viable from a professional photographic point of view to do that. Uh, so that, that's kind of the, for better or for worse, the, the decision I took really. And have those more niche stories ever been picked up? Some have um, and some haven't. Increasingly going forward, um, people are, maybe the media in some cases are looking for slightly more nuanced uh, ways of, of, of trying to get the, the climate emergency across and some of those things yeah, that I've documented have been covered um, by the press. But there's an awful lot of places that I've been to where, quite frankly, some of the images have almost barely ever seen the light of day. Um, maybe they will going forward, but you know who knows. And how did you exactly get it up and running then? Because it's it's obviously a massive undertaking financially. But how did you kick it off? Before I started documenting climate change, I'd already been working um, for quite a lot of years as a stock photographer. I got a lot of work out in different agencies, so I was already um, you know making the vast majority of my money from uh, the income from the sales of my images. So that basically gave me, at the time, enough money to be able to think, right, well, I can spend £4,000 to spend a month in Alaska um, because I've got the money coming in from sales to do that. Um, so that was kind of the, the model that I used. But um, when I started at the turn of the century, really, um, the rate that photographers got for their images was, was quite good. So I was able to make enough money um, to cover you know, the expensive overseas uh, photo shoots. But as time went on um, and digital became uh, more of age, then there was a huge, uh, a huge amount more imagery out there. There was places where images were being sold really cheaply. There were places where people get images and pay nothing for them. And towards the end of the project, it became really difficult um, to try and fund it because I just wasn't getting enough in from photo sales to cover um, some of the um, some of the photo shoots I wanted to do. And so, for the last sort of couple of years of the project to kind of finish it off, I managed to strike a deal with WWF International, Worldwide Fund for Nature, and they gave me a pot of money in return for the use of my back catalogue of images because they, they campaigned massively on climate change issues. And the money I got from WWF uh, enabled me essentially to finish, uh, finish the project off. And have there been any outputs then, other than obviously this um, extensive photo library that you've put together, have there been any other outputs from it? Yeah, I mean, um, from a fairly early stage, I decided that at the end of the project, what I would want to do is put a book together with 500 of the best images um, from um, from the journey right around the planet documenting climate change. And again, early on, I decided that was something that I wanted to self-publish because the entire project um, was my project, um, I funded it, um, it was my ideas, 
And what I didn't want to do is hand that over to a book publisher who, even if they'd have agreed to do it, probably would have published the book they want to see published rather than the book I want to see published. So I set up a crowdfunding campaign um, and raised, I think it was about £45,000 uh, to self-publish uh, images from a warming planet. So that's a kind of a big, um, glossy art photographic book, as I say, with 500 of the, the best images from from the project. Um, and that's, you know, it's won a few awards. Uh, I've been getting the book out there to to a lot of influential people, so people like Al Gore and Prince Charles and um, Chris Packham and loads of the Pope and people like that, um, uh, Emmanuel Macron, uh, lots of people I've been sending the book out to to try and you know get the message out there that look you know this is the story, this is what I've spent you know at the time 14 years documenting um, these are the impacts that are, are that are happening right now right around the planet um, so the big outcome so far has been uh, has been the book um, I'm working on another sort of climate change initiative uh, now but again I, I kind of need funding to set that up so which isn't in place at the moment I'm hoping it will have um, some more impact going forward. I have a, a travelling exhibition of some of the images from the book, and the exhibitions appeared in a few places. So I'm trying to raise awareness by um, continuing to do that. Although obviously um, at the moment that's not something I'm able uh, able to do. And I, I lecture a lot. I, I I do I do sort of illustrated slideshows. I talk to groups a lot about my experiences. And again, but that's something I'm not able to do at the moment. But I you know spend as much time as possible under normal circumstances um, just trying to get the message out there to as many people as I can. And what is the the new project, the new aspect of the project that you're exploring now? It's something called I Commit and it's what I did was thought, well, I, I've put this you know, global collection of climate imagery together, some of which is being used and some of which is just kind of gathering digital dust on a computer and I thought, you know, this stuff kind of needs to be out there. And although I put together the world's single largest collection of climate change and renewable energy imagery, I'm, I'm one person and there's a real limit to what one person can kind of achieve. And so I started thinking about what would be useful going forward. So, and, and what I did is I kind of took the idea that's almost like put me out of business, as in these days the world has got a camera. You know, you walk into the poorest communities on the planet, and, you know, half, half the people there have got a mobile phone that's got a camera on it. And it's the fact that the market is swamped now with imagery um, that is the reason for, you know, the rates that professional photographers get paid, you know, crashing really. So I thought, well, that's been a kind of a disadvantage as a professional photographer, but I can put that to an advantage. So the idea is, for I commit, is that whenever there is a climate change related event, whether that's a flood, a drought, a forest fire, whatever it might be, there are people out there documenting that on their on their phones, um, with cameras, whatever. Um, but that imagery is you know, maybe going on somebody's Facebook page or it's just sitting on the phone or whatever. But I think, wouldn't it be fantastic from like a scientific point of view, from an educational point of view, if 
I could set up an online portal where people could upload their own images that show the impacts of climate change um, where they live. And I thought, well, you know, if that works, if that's successful, that could quite rapidly grow into a huge global database, a visual database of how climate change is impacting right around the planet. Yeah, that's a great idea. And how has it been received so far? I'm trying to raise the uh, the funding to set that up. I need, I think, around about £55,000 to just pay for the initial um, design work and the kind of computery wizardry work that would um, actually make it a, a viable proposition. Um, but at the moment, I haven't got the funding for that. I've set up a crowdfunding campaign for that, which is kind of doing really, really badly. I have got a startup company in the, in the US who have said they will fund it. Um, but because they're a startup company, they kind of haven't made any money yet. So um, I'm just sort of sat here waiting uh, for the point in time when hopefully that money will come in and I will be able to set that up and, and get it get it moving forward and, and working, really. So that's, that's obviously a, a legacy um, that you want to establish for the project. Has that been a guiding force throughout, thinking about how to maximise the impact of, of your project? Yeah, very much so, because I, I just feel, it, you know, it is just such a critical issue. Um, you know, every individual on the planet needs to firstly know about it, um, and they need to be motivated to do something about it, and they need to be motivated to push their political representatives to do something about it. So. Um, unless people uh, know about it, are motivated, nothing is going to happen. So right from the early days of the project, I kind of thought this is something I need to try and get out there literally as widely uh, as, as I could because it's not going to work um, the way humanity is operating at the moment. We are not going to avoid the worst excesses of a climate emergency. You know, until the COVID outbreak, emissions were still rising fairly rapidly. Um, we've had a bit of a slowdown since because uh, the world's economies are currently crashing due to the virus. But if that hadn't come along, we would still be in a business as usual scenario. Um, and we would still be looking at a, a rising emissions trajectory. Uh, and until such a time... Um, the political will is there um, to get emissions going in the opposite direction. We can't have a lot of confidence that we're going to be able to tackle this. So it is critical um, that everybody knows about it. It's critical that people are motivated um, to actually do take personal decisions in their own lives um, to reduce their own carbon footprints, but even more importantly, to push politicians to do the big things that you know individuals can't do in terms of tackling the climate emergency. Based on your experience, how do you feel we can better engage the general public and also policymakers as, as visual storytellers, as, as photographers, as documentary storytellers? There's been quite a lot of research done now in terms of how visual imagery and in particular how climate change visual imagery um, impacts on people. And what that has shown is that images that show positives are likely to resonate with people uh, far more and perhaps engage them and get them to take some action than the negative images. So, you know, images of polar bears on a melting
melting ice cap or you know chimneys belching out smoke or whatever that's all pretty negative stuff and people tend to react fairly negatively to it what they tend to act more positively to are images of people taking positive action um so you know images of people fitting solar panels to their house roof things like that so what we need to do is we need to use the research uh, that is that is out there and available to actually look at what we should be photographing going forwards to try and engage and enthuse as many people as we can and that's that's really important at this stage because we need stories um, to be in the media all the time about the climate emergency but they need to be stories that are going to motivate people to actually do something. Seeing the impact that your work has had and the uptake of it um, in media outlets and and then also this, this research that's been done. Is there anything that you would have done differently if you were to start again? I think I wouldn't be a climate change photographer if I wanted to uh, make some money. <laughs> that I'd have done differently because there's many branches of photography <laughs> that are way more commercial <laughs> than photographing the impacts of climate change. Um, but seriously, what perhaps would have been good, and I kind of tried it in the early days, was to engage more photographers um, to concentrate on climate change as an issue and you know that's creeping up a bit now there are other people out there doing similar work uh, but certainly when I set off sort of 20 odd years ago nearly to start documenting this there you know hardly anybody was, was looking at, at it as an issue. And then so thinking about uh, somebody who's listening who wants to start up and um, start exploring documenting the issue of climate change what advice would you give them? Maybe to look at ways that the story can be covered differently from a local angle, from a local perspective. Um, so, you know, I've spent 16 odd years traveling around the planet doing this. and There's probably things on my doorstep that I haven't covered. And it's those little local stories that can sometimes be really, really important and sometimes get missed out. So yeah, I've just sort of kind of try and keep it local and, and cover as much as you can in your local area. Can you maybe share one of the most memorable moments from the project? I, I've seen a lot of doom and gloom as I've been traveling uh, around the planet and that, you know, that kind of gets to you over the time, over the years. But some of the things that remain with me perhaps uh, longest are the really positive, uplifting things that I've seen. Um, I did a photo shoot for WWF to India and that was to look at the ways that some communities were investing in renewable energy. So we spent some time down in the Sundarbans uh, looking at poor farming communities who had never had access to electricity before. And so um, their houses were lit at night by kerosene lamps which they have to buy the kerosene, it's expensive, um, it's really dangerous, it's polluting, you know, something like a couple of million, mainly women and children, die every year from the impacts of inhaling kerosene fumes. And WWF had gone along and put some solar panels in this farming village and given each house a solar battery, which they took to the panels, charged up once a week, and then they took that battery back to their house and they could have a light in their house 
uh, they could charge their mobile phone. Um, the huge increase um, in people's sort of standards of living as a result of something so cheap and, and, and so easy to do was really uplifting to see. And, and I visited places like the Barefoot College. The Barefoot College are doing incredible work. It's a, a charity started by a guy called Bunker Roy and he takes women from disadvantaged communities all around the world and teaches them how to do two things, teaches them how to uh, build solar lanterns and teaches them how to uh, build solar cookers. So these women can go back into their communities to cascade the learning um, and it has a huge impact on these people's lives because you know, the women in poor communities in Africa say that were maybe spending two or three hours every day walking out into the bush to gather enough uh, wood to light a fire to cook their evening meal on, now they've got a solar cooker. They don't have to go out and chop the forest down, which is a win for the environment. It also frees up their time. Um, so things like that are really, really positive. And uh, I went to a place called the Mooney Siva Ashram, and there they deliver services from cradle to grave. They, uh, they have like maternity services, they have schools there for children of all ages, uh, they have an old people's home there, they have a, a specialist cancer hospital on site, and they invested in their first renewable energy back in 1986 when you know, nobody had even heard of climate change at that time. Uh, certainly nobody had heard of renewable energy really, hardly. And they, that um, ashram now is 100% run on renewable energy. So they deliver all these amazing charitable services for the community and everything is powered by renewables. And it's just fantastic to see, even down to the world's first solar crematorium, which is amazing. You know, you've just got this big panel reflector which concentrates the sun's power uh, on, a, on a metal box. You put the body in the box and it can burn um, four bodies a day completely in accordance with local religious beliefs because yeah. at the end of the day they have to be cremated. Uh, so in the past it was go down into the forest, chop a load of wood down to, to build a funeral pyre. Now they don't have to do that. And seeing such positive outcomes in people's lives being powered by renewable energy for me was just kind of like the holy grail really just absolutely fantastic to see yeah i'm sure it must have been amazing to witness all these different events and experiences and, and from a photographer's perspective it, it must have balanced out um all the doom and gloom uh, stories that you're exploring and, and the, the feeling of desperation and hopelessness in terms of the lack of action it, it must have helped from a, a mental health point of view as well and being exposed to these positive stories despite you know obviously the the poverty that you're also witnessing and, and the the struggles it must have been still given giving you a little bit of hope that there was potential for change and potential for a different way and a, a transition rather than uh, falling off a cliff face like you say from, from a mental health perspective it's kind of vital really that you see the positives as well as the negatives and and also those are you know the positives are really strong messages to get out there to show people that you know we can power our lives using renewables going forward we need to invest in it but you need to invest in any energy system um, and the cost now of, of virtually every type of renewable energy there is 
are cheaper um, than coal-fired or gas-fired power stations. So, you know, it's, it is a no-brainer. Um, why, you know, why are more will governments not investing in this stuff? Because it's, it's cheaper for the energy consumer uh, than it is burning a lump of coal in a coal-fired power station. And so one, one last question. Other than funding, what other challenges have you faced? Working in remote areas, working in um, Arctic and Alpine environments um, is potentially challenging and potentially dangerous. And I've spent a lot of my time over the years in those kind of environments uh, with the, you know, the risks that, that go along with that. So when I was documenting a glacial retreat uh, in the Himalayas, I came fairly close to being swamped by a massive avalanche that uh, came off the side of this peak when a, a huge chunk of ice came away and dropped about 10,000 feet and completely covered the valley floor that I'd been in sort of quarter of an hour earlier. Mm. Um, I um, put one foot uh, through a snow bridge over a crevasse in, on the Greenland ice sheet and just managed to kind of throw myself backwards and not hurtle down some who knows how deep crevasse. Um, so there are things like that when I was working with a scientist um, on a, a large glacier on the west coast of Greenland. We were using a dye tracing technique to, to um, try and extrapolate how much meltwater was coming out from this glacier. And he was, the scientist was down putting the dye in the river. I was right next to him taking, taking the photographs of him doing that. Uh, we put the dye in the river, we walked away and literally about three or four minutes after we walked away from the edge of the glacier, this huge uh, serac fell off the face of the glacier, completely buried uh, the point where we'd just been stood uh, and sent armchair-sized pieces of ice kind of like whistling over our heads. Um, certainly that was kind of like a little bit of a brown trouser moment. Yeah, uh, and then, so there's the, there's the physical dangers, um, there's also the fact that, you know, in terms of documenting um, industrial activities and things like that, I was um, kind of intimidated every step of the way. I've lost count of the number of times I've been stopped and searched by the police, followed by security guards. When I was in China documenting some of the new build coal-fired power stations there, I was um, arrested by the Chinese police. I was arrested by the Chinese army. Um, when I was documenting tar sands in Canada, I was stopped by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Uh, the very first day I was there, they saw that I was a professional photographer. And this guy said, you take one step off the highway and I'm going to arrest you and charge you with trespass. So I said to this guy, well, trespass is not a really very serious crime. So if I do that, you know, what happens? He said, well, I will lock you in a cell until such a time a judge deems fit to look at your case. And I said, well, how long might that be? And he said, oh, three to four months. And I, I looked at him, I said, you seriously telling me you're going to lock me away for three to four months if I take one step off this highway? And he looked me straight in the eye and said, yep. And that just shows the level of intimidation um, that is used when people you know, don't want the world to see the environmental destruction that things like the tar sands is causing. And it's, you know, it's just all driven uh, by corporate greed. So, 
there's been you know just endless incidents of um, being you know intimidated by security guards, police, army, whoever. Um, so yeah, it's been kind of quite a a process of a trial of attrition along the way, really, um, getting some uh, getting getting the imagery and getting getting that imagery out to the world to see that um, when there's a lot of people who really don't want you to see what you know what destruction they're causing. Yeah, exactly, because the the status quo maintaining that is reliant on a lack of transparency and, and ensuring people don't actually know. But then maybe this, you know, the COVID-19 situation and um, the reduction in pollution and uh, emissions, maybe this will show that without having to negotiate your way into into onto private land and, and to capture those shots, this is showing on a, on a very top level. Uh, very macro level, just the sure. destructive impact that we are having and that our consumption is having and, and that business is usually in the status quo, um, what that means really in, in real kind of environmental terms. People are finally sure. getting an opportunity to see that. One other example as well, um, whilst I was documenting the tar sands, um, I met a, a doctor called Dr. John O'Connor and he'd worked in First Nation communities for about 25 years and downstream of the tar sands, mainly First Nation Canadians live. And part of the tar sands process is they use a lot of gas to turn water into steam to melt the bitumen so they can separate it out from the sands and gravels. And then this, the water contains all sorts of contaminants and they put it into unlined tailings ponds. And if they're unlined, it just leaches out and gets into the Athabasca River. And across these First Nation communities downstream of there, are hunting uh, caribou, they're, they're fishing the rivers, and these environmental toxins are getting into their systems. And John O'Connor was the first person to realise there was like a massive spike of um, skin diseases and cancers in some of these communities. And he approached the Canadian government um, to ask them to undertake a health assessment of the community to try and get to the bottom of what was causing these communities' problems. And he didn't um, blame the tar sands, um, although he thought that's what the problem was, but he asked the, the government to undertake a health assessment. And the government's response to John was to immediately charge him with four cases of gross professional misconduct uh, which prevented him from working for a G as a GP for five years um, and completely sidelined him. So he couldn't be a fly in the ointment of, um, of you know, the, the Canadian government's just will to expand the tar sands because they're making a lot of money out of it. I mean, he spent five years battling to clear his name and was, was eventually uh, exonerated on all, all the charges the government put against him. And he's now back working as a GP. But it's just a really good example of the of literally the lengths uh, that people will go to uh, to try and kind of keep these dodgy cash cows rolling, really. Which I suppose is, is also another reason why a solutions-focused approach is maybe easier while also being more effective in terms of if we can't get behind those closed doors, um, and there inevitably is going to be resistance to that, uh, and always has been, always will be, that if we can just change culture by another means instead of like using shock and awe and um and shame and things like that then we actually use 
positive stories and solutions and then change people's expectations and understanding of what we can do. And then hopefully then wider society will shift with it. But then, so you've also been partnering up then uh, with academics and others. You haven't always just been going solo into these communities and getting access by your own means. You've also partnered up with experts. Yeah, well, most of the places that I've been to, what I've tried to do is to work alongside climate scientists who are doing work in the relevant fields that I was wanting to document, because that obviously gives the, the whole project a lot more legitimacy. If I can say that, you know, what I've been documenting, what I've been photographing is, is based on sound science. So it wasn't always possible, but certainly in some places I was able to get quite a lot of access to scientists um, who were working in the field. And, and generally speaking, a little bit like the communities as well that, that welcomed me. Most scientists were very, very welcoming to to share their work with me as well and happy for me to to be alongside them documenting what they were doing. Right. And would you say that's still the case now? Because obviously, you know, I'm sure things have changed over time. Well, they have changed over time. So would that would they still be as receptive now? I'm sure they would be. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there are there are huge global challenges. I mean, as we know, um, in places like the US, um, the current administration has, you know, slashed hundreds of millions of pounds from from science budget. So, you know, science is really struggling in the US right now, uh, and particular climate science. Um, but in most other parts of the world, it's, you know, the decisions that we take for humanity going forward have to be based on you know, the best available science. It is critical uh, that we continue to invest in science. And it's critical that that science is open, you know, uh, and is accessible uh, and, and can be seen by all. What's what you know? What scientists are doing? Yeah, most definitely, I agree. Well, thank you very much for your time. Um, where can people find out more about you and um, your book and the iCommit project? Well, there's two main websites. The first is my uh, photo agency website, which is www.globalwarmingimages.net. Uh, and then the second, if people are interested in looking at the book, you can you, you can view about 100 pages of it online. You can buy copies of that from the book website, and that's www.imagesfromawarmingplanet.net. So those are the two main kind of resources out there for people to uh, to look at uh, what I've been up to for the last 20 years. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Documenting Climate Change podcast. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Ashley. And if you'd like to find out more about his work, visit globalwarmingimages.net or you can buy a copy of his book at imagesofawarmingplanet.net. The show notes for this episode with links to all the people and organizations mentioned can be found on the Documenting Climate Change website. Visit documentingclimatechange.org and navigate to the podcast section of the site. While you're there, if you sign up to the weekly newsletter, you'll be kept up to date with the latest releases, articles, advice on how better to communicate on the issue of climate change, as well as featured work. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast via whichever app you use, and please share this episode with everyone you know, and help more people see it by leaving a rating and review. And if you're doing something to document the issue of climate change on any level, and in any way, and in any format, 
and would like your work to be featured on the podcast and website, please get in touch with me via email at chris at documentingclimatechange.org. Thanks again, and until next time, take care.